right, welcome to day 322 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Ezekiel 34 through 35, Psalm 128, and James chapter 2. Okay, in Ezekiel 34, we have uh, a prophecy given to Ezekiel by the Lord, and uh, this one is directed against Israel's leadership, Judah's leadership, um, particularly, remember he calls Judah Israel a lot, so it's prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. And then, so throughout this, this metaphor of shepherding is going to be used, and their criticism is immediate. Okay, the challenge that God makes to them, thus says Lord Yahweh, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. So the the shepherd's job, of course, is to take care of the sheep and to make sure that they are protected and that they have adequate grazing, uh, grass, and adequate water and all of these things, but instead they've been using the opportunity to feed and fatten themselves. Should you not should shepherds should not shepherds feed the sheep? And yet not only are they eating, but what are they eating? They're eating the sheep themselves. You eat the fat, so you're slaughtering these sheep you're supposed to be caring for. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, you do not feed them. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, and the injured you have not bound up. And we could just uh, imagine all the different things that these metaphors um, relate to and all of the injustice that we have seen that many of the Israelite kings or the Judean kings, well, both the Israelite and Judean kings, uh, but here in view, of course, Judah, um, <clears throat> all of the things that they have done and all of the things that they have neglected to do, um, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so they were scattered because because there was no shepherd. Uh, the idea of sheep being sh- scattered um, in the absence of a shepherd is something that we've seen before. Uh, this we go back to First Kings twenty two. Okay, this is that that thing where um, Ahab has gotten Jehoshaphat of the south to help him in his battle with Ramoth Gilead, and uh, Jehoshaphat insists on calling a prophet of Yahweh, Micaiah. Micaiah comes, and this is that passage with the lying spirit, right, sent from the Lord, um, that tricky one that we've looked at uh, several times. But um, when Micaiah finally reveals what he has truly seen, this is, these are his words. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. So without the shepherd, the sheep just start going wandering. Um, but here, it's uh, it's there's added significance to that because the scattering here is not merely uh, wa- sheep wandering aimlessly, not knowing where to go, not where not um, being cared for. But here, the scattering does seem to be scattering among the nations because it becomes uh, quite clear that the scattering of the sheep now that has happened is uh, a way of describing the exile, and um, we'll see that as as we continue through the passage. Um, but the, and, and notice too, the, uh, the, the language, like kind of really taking advantage of the metaphor and how it refers to other things that we are familiar with. So in, uh, verse six here, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. That is language that, uh, becomes kind of typical to describe the high places, right? You laid down under every green tree on every high hill. 
My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And um, uh, if it's if it seems a little confusing way, if, if they're scattered, and that means exile, uh, aren't the high places the high places of Israel? Well, keep in mind, even the exiles um, we've seen are not doing too great in the loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength department and the uh, having no other gods before me department. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As I live, surely because my sheep have become a prey because of what has happened as a result of your godless leadership, um, therefore hear, verse 9, shepherds, the word of Yahweh. Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand. Okay, that, this is um, a, a, a standard <clears throat> expression that we get sometimes in the Old Testament for God coming as a reckoning for what has been done. So this is used in Genesis 9.5 uh, for the lifeblood of man that is shed, right? From whoever sheds it, I will require it from his hand. And, um, and then also here in Ezekiel, remember, this is the, the wicked, when the wicked are not told by God's messenger, okay? So the messenger, if, if he were to fail to deliver God's message and the wicked are judged for their wickedness and yet they haven't heard the call to repentance— they will be judged, and yet chapter 3, verse 18 through 20, God would require their blood from his hand. And uh, the same goes for the passage, which has a very similar theme that we saw yesterday in 30 through 6 through 8 of the watchman. He would require their blood from the watchman's hand if he failed to warn the city. And so this is it, right? I require my sheep uh, from their hand, and, um, <clears throat> and I put a stop to their feeding the sheep. Now, I think that that is an unfortunate translation uh, on the part of the English Standard Version. The word that is used here that is translated feeding is ra'ah, which simply means to shepherd, which of course includes uh, feeding. But here, I think, because the, 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 the way the English Standard Version has it, it's like, I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. Well, they're, they're supposed to be feeding the sheep um, I thought the problem was that they weren't feeding the sheep and that they've been eating the sheep, right? And so I think the idea is I will put a stop to the she their shepherding of the sheep. Um, same, um, and so no longer uh, shall the shepherds uh, feed themselves. Again, that's just uh, doesn't really um, uh, accurately capture the Hebrew here. The Hebrew is here as, is and no longer will the shepherds shepherd them. And so we we actually get the idea of, of them no longer eating the sheep at the latter part of verse 10. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And so what will God do now for his sheep? So it's not just a matter I'm going to judge the shepherds, but <clears throat> thus says Lord Yahweh, I myself will search for my sheep. So here is the idea of God as shepherd, most famously known, of course, from Psalm 23. I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So notice, rescue them from where they've been scattered. Remember the scatter all over the... Um, uh, they, they were scattered because there was no shepherd, right? Um, and so here we start seeing uh, they've been scattered 
all over the earth, although we had already seen the idea in verse 6. Um, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. Okay, see that that scattering is the exile. And now here we are getting a way of describing the return from exile. I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and the um, in all the inhabited inhabited places of the country. Uh, I will give them good pasture. They shall lie down in good grazing land. Okay, lying down. He causes me to lie down beside still waters, um, so that's you know the sheep are in, are in peace. They can they can lie. They can rest. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. <clears throat> I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, God maintains, and I myself will make them lie down. So the emphasis that God is the one who is going to do this. I will seek the loss. I will bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Notice the the very clear emphasis on, on the the action of God, that this is something that God is doing. So the, the shepherds have been dealt with, the sheep have been rescued, but notice a new challenge here, okay? The fat and the strong. So among the sheep who will return, there will be those who will still need to be dealt with, who are yet going to cause problems for God's people, and God will um, will judge them accordingly as well. So the and these are described as the fat and the strong among the sheep. Um, I will feed them, my sheep, with with justice. And now here we have that judgment uh, or the the destruction of the fat and the strong and the the justice for the wrongdoing done to them described. So as for you, my flock, says Lord Yahweh, behold, I will judge between sheep and sheep. Right. So the so my sheep versus the fat and the strong between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you, you fat sheep, good, healthy ones, right, the ones that can push the others around, to feed on the good pasture? Okay, so I've brought you back from the exile, and I'm providing you with this good pasture. You are lying down, and yet you are treading down the the rest of the pasture with your feet. Is it not enough that you're drinking clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? So we have very much this idea of this continued cleansing of the wicked, even from the remnant that will return. And uh, I think we're seeing this idea of the the progressive aspect of the kingdom of God, that um, as at least as it's being envisioned here, it's not just this one-and-done thing, that God causes it to be established, and there's no more work at all to to happen. And uh, perhaps we might see a parallel here with something like the parable of the the wheat and the tares, okay, that that the kingdom of God um, does have those who uh, are are part of it who don't truly belong to it. And indeed, we're we've seen that idea kind of in Hebrews. We've seen that idea um today in the reading from James a little bit. Um, we might we might bring that into it as well, and so but so God's continually caring and watching over His flock. Um, so and then in verse twenty, this idea is carried forward again. Behold, I myself will judge the fat sheep and the lean sheep. I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And then notice the significant advance in verse twenty three, and I will set up over them one shepherd 
my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh. I have spoken." This, um, as I noted when we when we went back through the Gospels, is likely where Jesus is kind of uh, what Jesus is kind of riffing off of in John chapter ten, where he talks about himself as the good shepherd. Um, he is he is um, portraying himself likely as the fulfillment of what is being said here. Um, but notice here the the idea right that that in this restored kingdom. Uh, David or the Davidic Messiah, the Christ, will reign over God's people. And although it is true that God, you know, Yahweh, perhaps we might say the Father, is the shepherd and he is doing all these shepherd things, right? Remember the emphasis on all that I, 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 I will do. But now here we have David doing it. Okay. Um, I will make with them a covenant of peace. I will banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely. And then this goes on to talk about the blessing that this future kingdom will be, uh, sending showers down in their season, uh, the trees of the field yielding their fruit, uh, being secure in the land. And then this, this phrase that so much in Ezekiel has meant judgment here, again, designating it looks differently whether it's coming in salvation or judgment, and here it certainly is salvation, and they shall know that I am Yahweh, when I break their bar, the bars of their yoke, delivering from them from the hands of those who enslaved, enslaved them, they will no longer be a prey to the nations, they will dwell securely, none shall make them afraid. And then I like the way that that phrase is expanded also in verse 30. They shall know that I am Yahweh, their God, with them. Okay, uh, that's a significant addition. And then beyond that, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares Lord Yahweh, and you are my sheep, human sheep, and literally just Adam in, in Hebrew, um, reminding that this is in fact a metaphor, and I'm speaking to you, and I am your God, declares Lord Yahweh. Okay, so I, you will know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, and I am with you. Remember how prominent the idea of God being with them actually is as part of his, his, his identity, whom he has revealed himself to be. That goes all the way back to the burning bush. All right, then in chapter 35, we get yet another prophecy against one of the nations, this time against Edom, and it's very similar to other things that we see against Edom, most notably in the book of Obadiah, but the idea that God is going to stretch out his hand against them and judge them they will know that he is Yahweh, and why? Because of you know the reasons that we've seen brought up. Ezekiel's already brought this up; uh, he's bringing it up again. But you know, very prominent in Jeremiah, very prominent in um, in in uh, Obadiah, of course, um, as well as uh, some other places in the Old Testament. Amos uh, talks about this as well. Because you cherished perpetual enmity, verse 5, and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. So I'll say it once again, this is um, th what is in view here is Edom's gloating and perhaps participation in the destruction of Judah, the final destruction when Nebuchadnezzar came against the land and besieged Jerusalem. 
um, beginning in 587 and ending in 586, give or take a year or so. Um, the reasons are elaborated then in verses uh, 10 and following. Um, because you said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine. Notice these two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He just called this perpetual enmity. So though it is primarily the destruction of Jerusalem that is in view, really throughout this entire the entire time of their existence, they had their eyes on Israel and Judah. Um, although Yahweh was there, okay? So there I am in the midst of them, and you are uh, setting yourself against them and desiring to have what they have, rather than turning to me, perhaps, right? Rather, rather than, than seeking to join yourself with them, you remained their enemies. Um, and I think it's interesting, too, <clears throat> that God says, um, I have heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel. They are laid desolate. They are given to us to devour. So maybe even the idea that after Babylon has had its fill, they're going to come in and, and take what's left, um, what, what, they, what the Babylonians have left behind. And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me. I know what you were saying as Judah was falling and you didn't think that I could hear because you thought I was just like your gods. But guess what he says at the end of verse 33? I heard it. And um, while the whole earth rejoices when this future blessing comes upon uh, my people in the land I am giving them, I will make you desolate. Okay, let's go now to Psalm 128, another one of our Song of Ascents. And this one talks about the blessing that comes upon the one who fears Yahweh. And what does it mean to fear Yahweh? Well, the second line in verse 1 kind of explains that. Someone who, the person who fears him walks in his ways, right? And because of that, you don't really need to fear him if you are walking in his ways. And so um, so that's what, that's what the fearing of Yahweh looks like as conceived in this psalm. But then... Um, what does the blessing look like? Well, the blessing that is portrayed here is the blessing on the generations to come. So uh, this reminds us of how much this is a covenant to offspring, right? To Abraham and, and his offspring. Um, so you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. It shall be well with you. And then your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. And what does a fruitful vine produce? Lots of fruit. So your children will be like olive shoots. We just saw the psalm, right, where the children are a blessing from the Lord, and they're like quivers in the in uh, arrows in the quiver. And uh, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And uh, so here, your children are like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. All right, now let's go to James chapter 2. So remember, James is very concerned, as we saw yesterday, with um, iterating to this young Christian community, all these communities, right? It's probably a very general letter uh, written to multiple churches, about what a genuine, whole, complete uh, Christian life looks like, what true religion looks like. And so here he's going to elaborate more on that. The whole book is an elaboration on that. And uh, he's going to get at it first here 
with the concept of partiality and how someone who truly understands the ethics of the kingdom of God in Christ understands that partiality has no place in it. And the partiality here is very much, um, is very obvious, a very obvious kind of partiality. And this is partiality towards the rich. So, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, that's a little bit of a tricky um, phrase to translate at the end of the verse. That's, well, that phrase, as, as the ESV puts it in a phrase, really it just says, of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and then taste doxes, the glorious, perhaps. So, one way to translate that, in other words, there's no word Lord there. So uh, you could translate it, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, or I think the other really good option would be Jesus Christ, the glorious one, something uh, like that, although it's, it's unclear exactly how the word, um, uh, the glory, at the end of there, um, how that modifies the rest of the phrase. Um, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, fine there is literally... Uh, something like glistening. It's the Greek word lampros, which think of the word lamp, right? Like very impressive clothing, gold ring, glittering clothing comes into your assembly. Now, this man who comes in, okay, uh, is uh, is this a rich Christian or is it perhaps an unbeliever? He doesn't specify. Um, although I I think that there might be a suggestion that this is an unbeliever that for some reason has come in to maybe to see what's going on, maybe, uh, you know, for whatever reason that someone wealthy might be among them. Many of the Christians were poor. Um, but if you look at verses 6 and 7, right, the rich ones are oppressing you, dragging you into court. They're blaspheming the honorable name by which you were called, right? That doesn't sound like we're talking about believers here, but I think Either way, the same principle applies. Like a wealthy believer would, you know, you should also not show this partiality to him. I'm just saying, like, I think there's a few hints that this might be somebody who's not really part of the Christian community. But um, but the thing that catches your attention, whether a believer or an unbeliever, is that they're so wealthy. And there might be a lot of reasons we might think we should give them preference. Maybe we want to be... Uh, culture, you know, the, I guess the way that we kind of would baptize this and make make an excuse for doing something like this would be like, oh, well, we want to be like culturally transformative. And so we really want to make sure that we are um, uh, uh, appealing to and ministering to the movers and shakers in society. And so we're going to give them prefer. No, <laughs> that, that's like James really has a word about that kind of attitude among churches. There should be no distinction between the wealthy and the poor in the churches. Um, uh, so you've got that 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 really decked out, fancy looking guy coming in, and then you have a poor man in shabby, or you could translate it filthy clothing coming in. And you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, "You sit here in the good place." Right? That like there are examples of churches that have seating for celebrities, that have seating for wealthy people, like that literal of a thing, because there's obviously like um, non-literal ways to also run afoul of showing preference to wealthy people. I know like, uh, like it, the temptation is definitely there, 
right? Like, are you somebody who gives a lot to the church even? Are you going to give them more, their, you know, feedback more um, of an ear than you would give to somebody really who can't give that much? Like those temptations can be real, especially, you know, if you're like doing a building project or if you're, you're a church that's struggling to keep its lights on or your salary as a pastor um, depends on people giving and this guy sure, you know, he gives enough to pay my salary or whatever, right? The temptation is always there. It gives some kind of preference to someone just because they have more. Um, and um, note that James doesn't give us the reason why aside from the fact that he's wealthy. So there's many reasons why this might happen. But you tell that one guy, you sit over here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there. So not, you don't even get a seat. Or sit down at my feet. Okay, uh, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I see a lot of uh, of uh, similarities here to some of the things that are said in First Corinthians. Okay, think for example of how like the problem with the Lord's Supper in in chapter eleven. Um, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Again, similarities to First Corinthians. Think of the beginning of it. Right, he's 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 shown what is foolish. He's taken what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise, okay? Same kind of thing, like God chooses those who have nothing, and there's plenty of scriptures that talk about God raising the poor up out of the dust. Um, James in chapter 1 has already spoken in this way, okay? So it's, and it's not to say that God doesn't call any rich people to be part of the kingdom, it, but um, that they are um, less frequent than God calling those who are not impressive in the eyes of this world. And I think that even um, holds true today. Um, and so look at that. Look at those whom God tends to call, we might say. Um, they, they are those whom he has called to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And one might even say that a person who is poor m might have stronger faith, right? Because they are more might be prone to have stronger faith precisely because they're poor, because they're more aware of their dependence on God and their trust in Him, and and that that He is all they really have, whereas the wealthy can can fall into the kind of delusions that, that wealth and riches can bring to people and think that that's their security or that's what makes them valuable, right? Like, that's not to say that the poor can't idolize money just as well as the rich people can. Um, but you know we need we do need to heed what scripture says about wealth and that it is difficult for a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of god like that's a real thing um paul remember says not only that he's learned the secret when he he's learned the secret of of both having little and having plenty that having plenty is a challenge to one's faith just as much as having little is or perhaps even more uh, but you've dishonored this poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Okay, and the the the, the first century society uh, in the Roman Empire was very socially stratified, and you have a lot of people. Um, you know, we talked today about like the diminishing middle class, but you really had that amped up in the first century. 
um, Roman Empire where um, wealthy landowners will, would accumulate more and more um, and kind of, uh, you know, making it, uh, making it harder for people who have less to uh, prosper. Um, also, the ones who drag you into court. Remember this issue in 1 Corinthians 6 with bringing people to like suing one another. And I noted there that there might even be a little bit of a class thing going on there because those who have a lot of money can tend to, to manipulate the legal system or navigate it, at least we could say, right? They can afford a lawyer who's going to, uh, who's going to, 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 to run and gun for them uh, while the poor cannot. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Again, the tendency on the part of the rich. And then he goes on, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, it seems like what he's referring to here is the Old Testament law in one sense, right? Because notice he goes on and he cites examples from the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, and stuff like that in verse 11. Uh, so he seems to have the the Torah in mind here, um, which no surprise is called Scripture. And then he cites you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18, of course, is cited as the primary command that governs the ethics of how we are to treat one another. Um, Oftentimes it's cited like that in the New Testament. So Jesus says this multiple times in Matthew alone. It's in 5.43, and 23.39 as well as in the other Synoptic Gospels. Paul cites it in Romans 13, 9, and in, and in verse 10 there, he says that if you do that, you are fulfilling the law. So you have this idea that um, the law is summed up in that command. And of course, let's note also that Jesus says that the first commandment which is um, to which this one is like um, is uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But uh, but yeah, so like in terms of how you treat each other, this kind of sums up the the primary. This is like the center that that everything else revolves around. The sun around which the moral God's moral universe revolves, and um, now it's brought into the Christian context um, in a very interesting way because um, th- this relates to how. Christians relate to the Torah, the written word of God in the Old Testament. Now, there's, of course, a complicated teaching on this in the New Testament, right, with Paul making it very clear that we're not under the law's jurisdiction per se, but as I've noted before, that does not mean that the Old Testament law is irrelevant for Christians. In fact, it gives plenty of ethical instructions that reveal God's mind on a lot of issues, and you kind of have to be sensitive to the cultural and historical context as well as, as well as where those commands fit in terms of where God's people are in the history of what God is doing in the world, so sometimes called redemptive history. So you have to be sensitive to those things, but we should not think of the Old Testament law as morally irrelevant for Christians. No one would say that of the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments being cited here, right? Like, all Christians, as far as I know, think that those are relevant for Christians, and yet those are part of the law. Don't forget that, right? So the law still occupies a very important place in terms of ethical instructions of what God 
requires. And of course, there's a lot of caveats that we'd want to put there, like regarding purity commandments and things like that. But uh, but nevertheless, um, you you the the law of God is something that that should be obeyed. And as long as we Christians are understanding it in a healthy way and not abusing it. Kind of like Paul introduces First Timothy with saying, you know, those who would be teachers of the law, but um, don't really understand how to apply it in a Christian context. So, if you're really fulfilling this royal law, um, this 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 love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you've basically, as the Gen Zers might say, you've sold the clip. Okay, you've. You are you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law's transgressors. So your your obedience to God, you're not really obeying God if you're doing this. This is against the royal law if you're showing partiality. Um, and so don't call yourself someone who keeps the royal law then, who loves your neighbor as yourself if you're if you're missing it on something this basic. For whoever keeps the whole law, he says, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, I don't think that this means that every sin is equal in God's eyes. There are such things as, as Jesus calls them, the weightier matters of the law. And we've talked about this idea, which I argue, have argued several times, is not really biblical, that God, all sin is equal, completely equal in God's eyes. But the point here, much like it is in Galatians 5, 3... And elsewhere in the New Testament is the idea that um, that violating any part of the law makes you a lawbreaker, and there is a sinful impulse that despises God's commands even when you disregard little things. And this really is not a little thing, this showing partiality. So um, you become guilty of all of it. You're, you're, you're judged by the law if you break any of it. Um, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder, right? So notice the issue there, right? It's you are disregarding God. If it's if it's something, if it's one, the, the point is that you are disregarding God, and that is like the, the heart of sinful disobedience. God's told me to do something, and I'm not going to do it. Even if it's don't eat that fruit from the tree, Eve and Adam, the point is that you are a transgressor and you need to repent if that is if that is you. Um, so and so in verse 12 he says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. okay um, And this idea of being judged by the law, even Christians being judged in a sense is something we'll return to in a minute. Um, notice, however, though, how he calls it here. Uh, that royal law, right? Now it's the law of liberty. It's a, the law that gives freedom. It is uh, freedom to live. Uh, true freedom is living according to the commands of God, because as we might note, say, like in a Romans 6 sort of way, there are no real free agents. Uh, the one who is who is free from righteousness is a slave of sin. Uh, and so the true freedom is actually uh, living the life that God has given you to live, that God has has commanded you to live. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. And then we get into one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament, and I'm not going to be able to uh, give a super long discourse on this, but of course I will give you my opinion on it and uh, how it fits in with some of the other theology in the New Testament as well. But uh, yeah, so let's get into it here. So 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Okay. Um, can that faith save him? Okay. So here, James is going to be is concerned with a certain kind of faith. Okay. Notice here that in this verse, right, James is aware that faith saves. Okay. Can the question is what kind of faith will save him? In fact, one might say that James might be even concerned with a lack of true saving faith here, because notice how he words it. This person says he has faith. We might translate it claims to have faith, okay, but in fact doesn't have it because there's no works there, and works are something that is inextricably linked with faith, although it is not the same thing, and uh, James does not conflate the two in this passage. They are still distinct. So the kind of faith that saves him, right? Can that can can faith that does can the kind of faith that doesn't have we might say can the kind of quotation marks faith that doesn't have works save a person? And here I do think he is using save in the sense of ultimate final salvation. And then he gives what at first appears to be an example, okay? But I don't think he's actually using it as an example. So he says if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? Okay. So on the one hand, technically, yeah, this could this is a good uh, example of what he's saying, right? Like if, if you think you have faith and treat your brother like this, like that's not real Christian faith. That's not real saving faith. Um and notice how how concerned James is with issues of how we treat the poor, just like we just saw in the in the passage about partiality. However, I think this is functioning more as an illustration than it is an example, because notice that in verse fourteen, okay, it is someone says he has faith but does not have work, so he claims this, and then here the way he voices this. Um, this, this piece of work, individual in verse 16, he says, and one of you says to them, okay? So it's what you say. Does what you do match what you say? So, and I think that's the issue. So he's illustrating the idea of saying you have faith, but really that faith not manifesting itself. In the same way here, it's somebody says that he wants a brother to be warm and filled, but then does nothing. So the idea is, do your actions match what you say, what you claim of yourself, the way you portray yourself to be? So also, he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And there, I, again, I think that verse also, you know, um, really clinches the idea that this is an illustration, not an example. So also faith, right? Just as this person's words did not match his deeds, uh, so also um, the faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, okay? And obviously, we want to have a living faith. A dead faith is a faith that cannot save. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. All right, now here we run into an issue that we see in other places in the New Testament, most most notably John uh, chapter 3. Now, remember John 3, one of the questions was, at what point did Jesus's words end? We know where his quote begins, but we can't say for certain where it ends. So like, this is the issue. 
was it John, the writer of the gospel, or Jesus who uttered uh, John 3.16, who authored it, we might say. Um, and it's unclear because we don't know where the words of Christ stop in that passage. Well, the same thing goes here, goes for here. Uh, we know it begins, you have faith, but we can't be sure where this quotation ends. There are, of course, no quotation marks in Greek. Um, so uh, there's a bunch of different examples, and I don't want to get too stuck in the mud on this point, um, because I, at, at the end of the day, I actually think that the way most English translations, including the English Standard Version, have it is probably right, although all positions have their issues. But some have suggested that the quote goes to all of verse 18. So you have someone saying, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then um, and then James takes over there and says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Like, so he starts elaborating on that. Um, but notice that this is very much in the style of a diatribe, right? Remember that, that, that fancy a word that we use to describe the way the flow of thought through Romans, where you have an imaginary conversation partner and the author inserts their words and then responds to them. That's kind of what's going on here, right? This is a short little diatribe here. And if that's the case, the problem is that in a diatribe, you typically say what your opponent would say, right? But this guy is saying pretty much what James is saying. So this, he's not presenting a diatribe of someone saying something that he's now going to correct. No, he's saying something that um, that 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 James is actually he's he's voicing the point that James is making. So it's probably not all of verse eighteen that would go in quotes here. Okay, there's also. Um, the but makes it sound like he's presenting someone he disagrees with, as well as the fact that he says someone will say, um, and then he says something that is in, that is um, uh, an issue, right? Just like in verse 14, he said, someone says, and then he presents a phrase with which he takes issue. Uh, there's also the possibility that it goes all the way through verse 19. So this guy's like, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Okay. Again, the same kind of issues here. That it's this is a this is a diatribe, and that seems to be the point that James is making. So it's not the voice of an objector. So I think that the best way to read this is actually to go with the quotation marks as they stand in the English Standard Version and most English translations. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. But actually what's going on here is that he is imagining a confrontation between two people, okay? So someone in your church might go up to another person and say, you have faith, I have works, okay? And kind of like, now James is going to talk about like, well, which one is right? Which person is correct? And I think that that's, that's the way that I understand it. Not a perfect solution. Um, and I, I don't know if anybody's really cracked the nut on that one, on this one, but I think that's what's going on here. And so, uh, show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. So that's, that is what Paul, what, sorry, <laughs> what James 
is essentially going to say here. And notice that the concern is with showing faith, right? The way that faith, that true faith is demonstrated, the way that true faith is proven. Um, um, is it is so? And and notice also, show me your faith apart from works. There's a lot of terminology here that sounds very Pauline, um, and almost that James and which has led some commentators to think that James actually disagrees with Paul in this sense. And maybe even that his imaginary interlocutor is Paul, and he's trying to correct Paul. Um, I don't really buy that, um, and. Uh, I, I think it's probably more plausible to, to say that the message that Paul taught of faith, um, you know, we are justified by faith apart from works of the law, stuff like that, um, or like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which states it very, very clearly, it's by faith you have, it's by faith, grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's not as the result of works, so that no one may boast, right? Um that 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 message is prone to misunderstanding and that just as we see that Paul has to deal with that in his letters so James has to deal with it here that um so so we might say if if there is if he is purposely using Pauline language here that he's actually responding to people who are abusing Paul's gospel who are abusing Paul's message so Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Notice, too, as I said a few minutes ago, that the issue here still is that faith is needed, that it is faith that is saving. But true faith, James will contend, is faith that has works. Okay, So you believe that God is one, you do well. Of course, that is um, a, a going back to the Shema, right? The, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Not going to go back into how that's translated here. I do mention it when I talk, when we went through Deuteronomy 6, so you might want to review that. But that's like a basic confessional thing for, for Jewish people, right? And the Christians carried it over. You do well, but guess who else believes that? Demons. It's so, And this is a good example of the idea that, right, that there is such a thing as faith as mere belief, as mere um, agreement with a set of doctrinal propositions. That is not saving faith. Saving faith in the New Testament has more to it than that. And then he goes on and he starts talking about Abraham, particularly in Genesis 22 at the almost sacrifice of Isaac. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now there, um, note... When we compare it with Paul, that language is almost scandalous, right? Because Paul consistently maintains that just that works have nothing to do with justification, whereas James here is basically saying, like, no, they're central to your justification. Certainly, at least, they were central to Abraham's justification. Um, now, it is possible that to say that James may be using justified here in a non-technical sense, so justified, as I, I think I've mentioned before, can simply mean vindicated, such as Matthew eleven nineteen, Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Basically, wisdom is shown to be wise when you see the fruit, the outcome of it. So it'd be like, the, so essentially justified here would be almost synonymous with the idea of showing um, as as uh, which is also kind of like a, a key a key word in, in verse eighteen. 
Um, but you know, that, that may or may not be the case. That's not that common of a way to use that word. And I think the way that Paul is conceiving Abraham being quote unquote justified here is shown throughout the passage, right? And it's explained in verse 22 here, you see that his faith was active with his works, right? So you see, again, that, that could be the idea that vindicated, right? Show me, uh, his, you see that his faith was active, but I think the point that is his faith was active along with his works and then faith was completed by his works. So in other words, Abraham's justification, his right standing with God is being, uh, worked out by his works. It is manifesting itself in its, in his works, in what he did. So was Abraham justified by faith? Okay, just like James acknowledges here in verse 23 by by citing uh, Genesis 15, the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Okay, so he acknowledges the idea that faith brings righteousness, faith brings justification. But on the other hand, he's saying works brings justification. And I think at least where I stand on this right now, is that um, James does does is being is trying to be as clear as he can here with the idea that the faith that justifies is faith that always has works. That doesn't mean that you're sinlessly perfect, right? But that the that true faith that justifies always has works to the extent that we can say, that his works justified him, right? He is so bold as to put it that way. Those are James's words, not mine in verse 21, okay? But we could be so bold as to say that because where saving faith is, uh, works also are going to be. Um, and and notice how he how he words it. He says that 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 Abraham's works fulfilled, right? made complete, this idea, this this faith that he had, which did save him and did justify him, right? And that faith is fulfilled by the works that he did. This is different than saying that your works earn your justification. No, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But now, being a righteous man, being one who is in right standing with God, who is justified by God— that justification manifests itself in good works and to such an extent that, again, James can be so bold as to say that our father Abraham was justified by works. And so in verse 24, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And that statement can be very jarring to us, especially for those of us who are very familiar with the language of Paul. But if we're envisioning ourselves before the final judgment seat of God, right, and you are a person who has lived by true saving faith, then you are also going to be a person who has good works. And those works do count for something before God, as I think you even get from time to time in the letters of Paul. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And 
and and even in in Ephesians chapter two, which, as I said, is one of the clearer passages I think of Paul's theology of faith and works. Right, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing; it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice the close association between our salvation, our justification, and our works. And there's really, like I think James would insist, there is no such thing as a Christian then who comes with no works to show for his faith. That is a concept that is foreign to the New Testament. And then finally, James brings in another illustration, and he talks about Rahab as well, of course, from the book of Joshua, who received the messengers, the spies from from the Israelites, and protected them and sent them out by another way, right? And she's incorporated into the people of God because of what what, what she did. She received a right standing with God because of what she did. Now, notice that if you think back to her story, of course, right, like it that comes from a true belief and a true fear in the Lord. And so the, those faith, the, so, Paul, so James is really just very concerned that Christians will conceive of faith and works as unrelated, as, as things like you, you the, the works are kind of optional and wants to make sure that Christians are not thinking that way, but instead are thinking of them in a healthy way as essential to a genuine walk with the Lord. And then he closes up and he says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And then once again there, we see very clearly that it is faith that saves you, but it is the kind of faith that saves you that James wants to talk about here. All right, that's it for today. As always, I thank you for being with me and I look forward to being with you tomorrow. Until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.